Uh, Father, as we head into this new year, several are still traveling and are ill. Uh, we would pray for a healing, Lord, physically of those who are enduring some type of ailment. Pray that you just restore them this Sunday morning in response to the prayers that we lift up to you. And also, Lord, since Christmas can be just a wonderful time, it can also, we understand, be a terrible time. And we ask for those who are hurting. We ask for those who feel alienated, who are alone, that you'd bring comfort to them. And if there's any way possible that we can be of assistance in that, just let us know and guide us in the direction. But Lord, we would pray that you would help us just to refocus in this upcoming year, not to pull back, but to move forward with determination in becoming those disciples that you've asked us to be, that we would not shrink back from the tasks that you have given to us, and that we would fall for you even more than in the first place. Whenever we came to you, Lord, we were filled with joy and expectation of what you have ahead and sometimes the road is long and we ask that you would renew us inside we thank you for your mercy and your grace and show that to us in your word in jesus name amen now since we haven't been in here for a couple of weeks we understand the theme of hebrews is the superiority of jesus christ as far as him being a priest, being over the angels, being over Moses, being over the sacrifices, everything that Christ is is better than the things in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant that God had for the nation of Israel. And we left off in chapter 9 around verse 10, but we will, just by way of review, uh, begin in verse 1, but if you remember, now we're going to hit the fourth thing in a series of dangers here. If you remember, the first danger was the danger of drifting away uh, as a believer. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it talks about that. Then there was the danger of disobedience, just willfully being disobedient. In Hebrews chapter 3 through Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, uh, deals with that. Then there was the danger of immaturity. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through chapter 6, verse 30. And we will be getting into, Lord willing, today the danger of willful sin in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 31. The final one that we'll get to in chapter 12 is the danger of indifference. But let's pick it up again in chapter 9, verse 1. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the golden covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room 
and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people, excuse me, and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. And that was Yom Kippur, and it's delineated or it's talked about in Leviticus chapter 16. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So the focus in the Old Testament was just doing on the outside but did nothing for the inside. That's why the temple stood for all of those years. Verse 11, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Now, just to give you some understanding of what this is, there is a a red heifer. They would take a red heifer, and it could not have a single gray or white hair, blonde hair in it whatsoever. It had to be 100% Red, And they would go through and they would check every single hair. And once they found the perfect red heifer, they would basically cremate the heifer. They would sacrifice it and cremate it. And then they would take those ashes as they were commanded by God. They would mix it with water. They would take hyssop and they would dip the hyssop in there and they would sprinkle it on an individual and they would therefore become clean. They also had to do this during the dedication of a temple. They would make sure that it was cleansed by the ashes of a red heifer. Uh, Verse 14, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, and that's where the looking at the red heifer, you know, there's no gray or blonde hairs. Well, Jesus Christ was unblemished. He was perfect in everything that he was. Cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. That's the difference between Christ's ministry and the covenant of the Old Testament. Christ's ministry allows our consciences to be cleared, to be wiped clean. If you can think of it in these terms, you have a hard drive, and the hard drive is all infected, and it has viruses and everything else. What do you do? You wipe it out. You reformat it. You clear it up, and you put all the programs on that you're supposed to. Well, that's what God does with our consciences. He takes all that information that is on there, all that sin, and just wipes it out. Now, what do we like to do? Search for it. We get back in there, where is it? I know that this is, oh, I feel so guilty. And we like to dredge that stuff up. And Christ says, no, I've forgiven that. You can move on. For this reason, Christ is a mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Now, when you hear the word ransom, you imagine in your mind that somebody has kidnapped someone you love 
and they're holding them hostage and they're calling you up saying you had better pay or else they do this in the Middle East all the time they do this down in Mexico if they know that you're somebody of substance they will definitely target you and they've made movies about this stuff and so uh, this idea of ransom it's not quite in keeping with the proper understanding in scripture the proper understanding in scripture is God says basically I will not fellowship with the human race they are sinful they're utterly harmful, not only to everyone else around them, but to themselves, and they will be judged, and they will all be thrown into hell. But since God is merciful, he says, okay, there is a price to be paid, and we think of it as a ransom you know, when the person is kidnapped, but God says, you must pay this price in order be- to become one who is accepted by God. And that price that had to be paid was a life had to be given or blood had to be spilled out. That's what God's requirement was. Now, why did he make that the requirement? I don't know. I have no idea why he made that the requirement, but he did. And he said, this is how you are first in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, to atone for those where I can look upon you and not judge you, and I can bless you when your sins are covered. That's the Old Testament. New Testament, God wipes them away as far as the east is from the west. And you guys know this. You've heard this before. When you head north, how far can you head? Only to the North Pole. Then where do you go? South. How far can you head? only to the South Pole. Now, if you head east, how far can you go? Forever. Uh, you can just keep going east forever, right? And so, when you head east, there's no end. When you head west, there's no end. God didn't say, I've removed your sins as far as from the north is from the south. He didn't say that. Whoops, revisiting again. No, he said, as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? has forever apart. It's an eternity apart. So he has separated you from that sin. He has paid the price. Now, normally, we would have to pay the price. We would be judged. Our blood would be spilled. Our life would flow out. But we still would not be acceptable to God because the sacrifice is not acceptable because our blood has the sinful life in it. The life that we live is sinful It is tainted. And so if we go to offer God something, any sacrifice that we would give him is not acceptable. It's a, sorry, it's not perfect enough. No matter what we do, if we think we're going to bring a sacrifice to God and he's going to be pleased with it, no, he's not. He wants us. Now, what is pleasing to him? The blood of his son. Now, you might say, well, that is thick. What do you mean the blood of his son? The reason it was acceptable to him is because that sacrifice was perfect. The blood was perfect. Jesus was perfect. He was unblemished. And since he was God in human form, that blood was not only able to cover himself, which there was no need of, but it was able to cover everybody in the human race. If you get to the book of Romans, we see that sin came into the world by one man, Adam, our great ancestor, he caused us all to be in this sinful state. And by the same token, one man can cause all who will accept him 
Jesus Christ, can be recovered from the sin that they are in. They can be redeemed. They can enter into heaven. So this idea of ransom is the price that needs to be paid is the sacrifice of a perfect individual and God will accept it in lieu of everything that we could do. And Jesus, he is our advocate. He's the one that sacrificed for us. And whoever he says is his will be acceptable to the Father. How do we know who are his? Those who asked to be. He doesn't impose it on anybody. He's not like in the military and says, you, 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 and you. You're going with me. He doesn't say that. He says, we've got a dangerous mission to go on. Who wants to go? And anybody who raises their hand, anybody who gives their heart, is able to go to heaven. Now, this seems, you know, when you start thinking about this, you go, this is all just surreal. I mean, we're existing here. I don't see this God you're talking about. I see this book, and yeah, there's some facts and stuff in there that are kind of unusual. It's prophetic. But you mean to tell me when I die, I'm going to go to heaven and be in eternal bliss and on a cloud and playing a harp and have a white robe and wings and all? No, it's not going to be exactly like that. But there is something that is unique. I mean, ask the question, and I've asked it. I've told you about that. Why are we here? What is the purpose? I mean, we live this life and we talk with each other and then we die. And that's it. It's over. When God says, no, it's not. And we're all searching for that meaning. And the Bible has the answers for this meaning that we're searching after. It tells us what's going on. It tells us the plan of God. It tells us the state of man. It tells us how we can be redeemed. It tells us where we're going to go. And God's going to refashion everything. And it's going to be a glorious existence. And that's what awaits us. The problem is, we often doubt. It's like I talked on Christmas Eve, the doubt of Zechariah. Because you doubted, what happened to him? He became mute. He wasn't able to speak, right? And so these things are real. They are as real as real can be. It's not some movie that you may have gone to see over the Christmas break. It's not some fantasy world that is out there. This is absolutely real, and God wanted to communicate it to us. And he has sent so many prophets, and ultimately he sent his son to make sure that we would understand what is in store. Now going on, he deals with the guilt... And in verse 16, he says, and he makes a shift here. He, he's trying to illustrate what this old covenant was about. And he shifts it to a discussion about a will. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. And so he's talking about this Old Testament covenant it had to be put in place through a sacrifice. The New Testament covenant that is talked about in Jeremiah chapter 31, this new covenant I will make with you, and he says, I will put my word in your hearts and your conscience will be directed by God. That covenant that he is talking about there, he said it only is going to start or be placed in force when there is a sacrifice. And Jesus was that sacrifice. And he's saying, just like a will, a will is not made good, until you die. Now, that's one of the things I told all the guys uh, we were going to Cambodia. I said, make sure you have a will. If need be, you know, if the 
plane goes down. There was a plane that just went down over there in uh, Indonesia. You know, Air Asia. Is that what we're flying? Air Asia? Oh, rats. Okay. Well, the, the side, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a ticket to heaven, you know, and it's a terrible thing to have happen. But I look forward to what's coming. Right here, I mean, it's full of a lot of pain. It's full of a lot of sorrow. It's full of a lot of turmoil. All of those things. And my will having to conform to the will of God. Why can't he just change my will? You know, I ask him to all the time. And then I get in the way. And he just won't change it. Why won't he just do that? Because he's perfecting me. He's getting me to the point where I want my will to be just like him. And I come into conformity. But when we die... Our wills are enacted. That's when you pull out the folders. Now, I have, you know, the life insurance and all that kind of stuff, and, but I need to make a disaster folder where you go to the folder, okay, he's dead, here's what we do, and we pull out all this stuff, and, and you go through it, and that's when the stuff, that's when the will, the living will, the do not resuscitate, all that stuff is in there, and that's when it's put into force, Right? That's when the attorneys come in and say, okay, this is what is going to happen. So the person has to die first. And Jesus died, therefore the new covenant was instituted when he died. The Jews would have understood this. Remember, he's talking to Jewish scholars here, those who would probably go on to become pastors under the new covenant. Verse 18, this is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. Now, if you recall the Old Testament In the Old Testament, Noah, what did he do when he got out of the ark? He built an altar and he sacrificed, right? And then there was a sign of the covenant that God made with him. And the covenant was, I will never cause the earth to be destroyed by a flood again. What was the sign he gave him for that? It was the rainbow. Now, some people have commandeered the rainbow, but we know what the rainbow is all about. The rainbow is God's promise that it will never be flooded on this earth again. And I have gave you this illustration before. From our perspective, we only see half the rainbow. From God's perspective, he sees the whole thing. It's a ring. It doesn't end. When the sun shines, if you've ever been in a, a jet and you've been looking down when it's raining down below, it's just this big circle. Sometimes you can see that circle looking at the moon at night. If there's a lot of humidity in the air, you look up and there's a ring around the moon, right? It's the same thing. That ring's kind of like a rainbow. Well, God gave us a promise. Then there was Abraham. Abraham was given a promise, a promise Uh, He promised him the land and also that his offspring would inhabit this land. And what was the sign of the covenant that he made with Abraham? Circumcision. That's what he said would be the sign. Now, you know, the Jews back in the days of Jesus, especially if you walked into the outer courts and you were a Gentile, they would inspect to make sure if you were a God-fearer, you had the job done, you know, that you were kind of under the covenant if you were a God-fearer. And you certainly, if you entered into the inner courts there, you were killed if you were a person who was unclean. Today, there is, you know, the Mormons, you can't go into their temple. Uh, When they opened the one here, you could go in there, but you couldn't go into the sanctuary. Why? Because you were unclean. 
and they gave you booties. Do you guys remember that when they opened that up down there? They gave you booties to walk through there. Why? Because they didn't want you soiling the carpet. What did they do after everybody went in there? This is what I heard from somebody who was a Mormon uh, that came out of Mormonism. And I still have that person's ring, by the way, their Mormon ring. They gave it to me and said, here, you take this. And I said, okay. And I dropped it in a little jar at home. But this, this idea that you would go there and be unclean, put little booties on your feet, well, guess what they did with the carpet? They ripped it all up. Why? Because you walked on it. And it's all unclean. Try to go to the temple today. Just, just try to walk in there. The Mormon temple on Highway 5. Do you think they'll let you in? About four bouncers are going to come and take you down. You're not going to get in there. You're going to make the place unclean. Well, the same thing was true with the temple in Israel. You could not enter that area and you would be killed. Today, you'd just be apprehended and thrown out if you're up at the Mormon temple. But that... Then they would kill you, they'd stone you, they'd do whatever to make sure that you were not able uh, to get in there. So Abraham had this promise of the land and the offspring. Circumcision was the sign. The Israelites, they became obedient and then disobedient, obedient, disobedient. And God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. If you are obedient, he said he would bless them. If they were disobedient... He would curse them. And they had a sign of their covenant too, which was the Sabbath. They were not to work on the Sabbath. Now, we accept Christ. We are under a new covenant. What is our sign of the covenant? Baptism. If you're under the covenant, you get baptized. And normally, we like to do it in a semi-public setting. We've gone down to the beach. We've gone down to the bay. We've done it in both places. We go to a pool. We invite everybody who wants to come, and everybody sees. Oh, yeah. You know, when you see a sign, you know something, right? How many signs do you see on the roadway? Too many. I mean, you see too many signs. Yield, don't yield, merging traffic, uh, right turn only, no U-turn. You see all these signs? You understand what those signs mean, You know that they're not there just for no plain reason. Well, why are we there with baptism? So everybody knows, oh, they're Christians. That's why they're getting baptized. And you testify about the baptism that you have gone through. So verse 19 goes on. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in his ceremony. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness. You know, we like to think of the temple as being something that is pristine. If you think of the tabernacle, what were the floors made out of in the tabernacle? Remember I told you last week or two weeks ago? What was that made out of? You guys remember? Acacia or gopher wood and it was overlaid with something. What was it overlaid with? Silver. On the walls, what were the walls overlaid with? Gold. And then what did you have when you walked in on the left? The lampstand. What did you have on the right? The table of showbread. You had two rows of six pieces of bread, and that's what the priest ate. When you walked forward, what did you have in front of you before you got to the Holy of Holies? The altar of incense. 
all of it splattered with blood. You would go in there as a priest and you would sprinkle blood over everything. Now imagine just painting your house. Nice white kitchen everywhere. The rooms, you know, you have your tans. And my granddaughter, she had a color. It was, I don't know. It, she just moved and they painted her room and it's like a, um, a fluorescent teal. You walk in there and go, whoa! You know, it's just bright as bright can be. Could you imagine somebody going into one of those rooms and taking a branch, like a, sage, a sagebrush, and taking sagebrush and you just came out from the pasture and you have a gallon of cow's blood and you dip that sage in there and you go all over the walls, everywhere. How do you think it would smell? It would smell like blood. Now, if any of you have had a steak lately, maybe you had prime rib or a steak, you can smell that blood. If you get close enough, you can smell the blood. Imagine you walk into the temple and it smells like a slaughterhouse. I'm, I'm, literally, you walk in there and everything is covered with blood. That's what the priest was required to do. And even the priest, you know, they would sprinkle on the horns of the altar, that blood would go on there, just everywhere. And it was a bloody mess everywhere. And they were just kind of used to that. That's how they operated. Going on. It says, It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. He is our intercessor. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way a high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Now again, the Jews who are reading this are saying, I get it. I get what you're explaining to me because they would have had the temple sacrifices and procedures completely down in their minds. Verse 26, Then Christ would have had to have suffered many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself, just as a man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Now, this particular verse, you need to take out a pencil or a pen. If your Bible's not open, you need to open your Bible and you need to underline it, star it, arrows going to it, little lights and stars with little flashes coming off of it, and right next to it, it is appointed unto man once to die. There is no second chance. There is no do-over. There is no Bill Murray Groundhog Day. You're not going to do this over and over and over. You get one shot. That's it. No second chances. Mormons will tell you, well... Kind of a second shot. Jehovah Witnesses will tell you, ah, kind of a second shot. Hindus will tell you, ah, millions of times you can go through it. You know, you just keep on going round and round and round. Bible says no. And, you know, I can remember talking with relatives. Well, I just believe that God gives us another chance. You know, we come back down. Scripture says no. Now, who am I going to believe? Somebody who wants it to be that way? Or what scripture says. 
Jesus rose from the dead, came back and talked about it and said, this is the way things are, gave us his disciples, his apostles, and they wrote this stuff down. And he says, there's no second chance. So if you've been thinking there's a second chance, you're going to come back around again. There is no second chance. You get this life. That's it. One chance. It's like in a big race or a championship. You know, wrestling, football, uh, springboard diving, tennis, golf, all of those things. When it comes to the main event, one chance. There are no do-overs, right? You, you can't take this or a uh, final exam. You know, Christmas for uh, a lot of the schools, most of the schools, they had final exams. You get one shot at it. You go for SATs, one shot. That's it. You don't get to go back and say, well, I didn't understand the question. Sorry. One shot. That's why we have to make this one count. You see, it, it, it brings it to this sense of urgency. It's like, what am I doing? Am, am I doing what I'm supposed to do? Because I get one shot with this. And every second that ticks by can be a second that you just gave up. Right? Um, just a personal illustration. Friday, I was going to go out and do some work. You know, the day after Christmas, it's a normal day. Right? I get out there and I did a little bit of work. I go... Okay, I'm done. And I, I just came back home. I just said, I'm not doing anymore. I'm done. I don't want to work anymore. I'm just going to go home and veg. And Patty and I went out and we vegged. That's what we did. I missed an opportunity to work. Uh, you, you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, we do have to work. There are opportunities. We want to take the most of every opportunity, but God also gives us a chance to relax. He says, take it easy, you know, just relax a little bit. I told the guys when we were going to, a couple of them, when we were going to Cambodia, actually, I think I told Eric. I said, Eric, he wanted to know the dates. What are the dates again? He has to get the time off. I said, you might want to take a day before and a day after off as well. You don't want to come right back here and be flung into reality all of a sudden. Just take at least one day when you get back and just relax, especially after you do all the work. So it's not all work and no play, but this idea we have to have a sense of urgency. What are we doing? Are we actually going forward? Are we doing what we're supposed to do? Because I get one shot at this. I don't get two shots. If I did something wrong in this life, okay, just forget about what is behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before me. I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to just go forward and time is running out, so to speak. Another personal illustration. My daughter, she has a degree in kinesiology. That's a fancy way of saying a phys ed degree. And she, uh, she's got a great job, you know, doing that. And she works for a private club up north and coastal uh, San Diego. And, and she also teaches spin classes. You guys know what spin classes are, right? You get on a bike and you pedal like mad and you go nowhere. You just sit there, right? And you listen to some music while you're doing it and you get all pumped up. You go, <laughs> and you're, you're going as fast as you can, but not really going anywhere. Well, when I was uh, younger, at age 19, before there was this thing called bicycling that everybody does, I'm dating myself, we decided to ride bicycles from Maine to Florida, and we rode the entire way on bicycles. This is before they had bike lanes. This was when the woolies were still made out of wool, 
this is when you still uh, were just getting into, what's a helmet? You know, and you put a helmet on and you would ride. Well, my daughter, she teaches spin, and we started talking about um, the East Coast. She goes, I'm totally down. Let's do it, Dad. And I'm going, wait a second. I'm not 19 anymore. You know, time is running out. And so she she wants to go do that. She wants to do the entire East Coast on a bicycle. And I'm going, oh, you don't know. Is it my time? I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be. She, yeah, Dad, let's do it. That's how we sh- I should be like her. When it comes to Christ, yeah, let's do it. Let's train for this thing. Let's go all the way. You know, that physical exercise is good. It only profits little, but spiritual exercise has profit not only for this life, but for the next life. And we need to get psyched about doing things for God. And that's what is being discussed here. It's pointing everything. You, you're, destined to, uh, die, or you're destined to die once, and then comes judgment. And it's keeping focus what we're supposed to be doing. Verse 28, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So he talks about Christ being a more superior priest. There's a more superior covenant and the sacrifice that was made by him giving his life was superior to all the sacrifices of the old covenant hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 the law is only a shadow of good things that are coming not the realities themselves for this reason it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. The law was only a shadow of the reality that was to come, namely Jesus Christ. Now he also says, or Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 verse 16, therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. And that's what the Jews were concerned with. They were concerned with all of these things, what you ate, which festival you kept, if there's a new moon celebration coming up, or if it's a Sabbath day. The Jews were completely enamored with keeping all those regulations. Verse 17 of Colossians 2, Paul writes, These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So the Old Testament was just to point to Christ. If it could... Would they not have stopped being offered, talking about the sacrifices, for the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilt from their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offering you do not desire. But a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. And that is a quote from Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. And if you read the quote where it comes from in the Old Testament in Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. It's just a little bit different than what we just read in verse 7. You might ask, well, why is that? It's because in the Old Testament that was written in Hebrew, uh, eventually, after the diaspora, after the Jews went into exile and they came back, 
many of them didn't know how to speak Hebrew or it was a language that was being lost. And so there was this group of elders that got together. They were called the Seventy or the Sanhedrin. And they would get together and they would write a new version of the Old Testament. And that New Testament, or excuse me, that Old Testament new version was called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint was a Greek version of the Old Testament. And so when you transfer languages like that, the words are going to be just a little bit different. And if you go from the Hebrew to the Greek, and now we have the English, and it went through a couple other transformations, uh, we don't lose the meaning of what's there, but just how the words are placed, the verbs and the nouns and the adjectives and all that, it just gets a little bit changed in there. And that's why the translations are a little bit different when you read it even in your current Bible in the current translations. Now going on, verse 8, For he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. And this is all through the Old Testament when Saul gave an order to wipe out the Amalekites and everything that they had. He didn't do it. He was told to completely destroy the Amalekites, but he brought back Agag, their king, and the soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was to be devoted to God. And God said, destroy it all. And Samuel ended up coming to him and said, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. You know, even as we go to Cambodia, there's going to be sacrifice there. But God would rather have our heart in obedience rather than offering sacrifice. Have you ever made a deal with God? Have you ever said, God, if, you know, if I do this for you, then you'll do this for me, right? That, that's how I'll sacrifice this. I'll, I'll fast. No, no, I'll give money. And if I give money, will you do this for me? And you start bargaining. Okay, how can we do this? You know, um, maybe, do I, what if I throw in a couple of Bibles to somebody who doesn't have them? Okay, I can do that. Or um, maybe I'll pray a little more often. If I pray a little more often, go to church a little more often, and I give some Bibles to somebody and show up to church more, then you'll bless me, right? Or then you'll heal me, right? Oh, God, I'll, I'll serve you all the days of my life if you just heal me. And he goes, you have so many days left. Serve me anyhow, right? That's what he's asking. So this idea of sacrifice, no, he doesn't want the sacrifice. He wants you. He wants all you. When you get married, what does the bride want? The bride wants a lot, let me tell you. Uh, but what does she really want? She wants her husband, right? And she wants him all to herself. Isn't that the case? She doesn't want him looking at anybody else. No other woman. No one else out there. Just her. She wants exclusivity. That's what she wants. And you know, the guy's job, the guy naturally, when he is created, he's looking everywhere and he just happens to spot you. And he goes, okay, that's good. Yeah, but that, that, that's, 
That's good. And he focuses on her. That's what he's supposed to do. That's his life of sacrifice. Focus on her. Make sure she feels loved. And if she feels loved, life is grand. If she doesn't feel loved, even the Bible says there's nothing worse in this world than a woman who is married and unloved. And so this idea, God wants you, and he is a jealous God when it comes to you. If you wanted to, I'm going to give an example, a real-life example. Say you came to church, and you're real involved in church, but you also do the Masonic Lodge. Do you think God's pleased with that? You know, to anthropomorphize it, to put it in human terms, imagine, imagine a wife and a husband being together, and the husband knows the wife is flirting. Right? Now, if he's a selfless husband, what would he do? Would he get angry? Would he be jealous? By the way, I'm going to give you a statistic that I read. This statistic is interesting. Only 11% of women feel guilty when they flirt. That means 89% of women think it's just fine to flirt. Guess how many men feel guilty about flirting? 29% of men feel guilty about flirting. Women have no problem. Say, what? What was I doing? Something like that. Where a guy, you know, it's still, I think uh, it needs to be a little bit better than 29%, but it's still, you know, well, what if the woman is flirting a little bit? And the guy goes, hey, what are you doing? What? I'm not doing anything. You know, and the, and the guy, you know, he gets a little jealous. He doesn't want that going on, especially the woman. The woman doesn't want that going on with the guy either, right? Don't want you flirting with somebody else. That's not supposed to be going on. God is a jealous God. He doesn't want your sacrifice. If the husband comes home and says, Here, honey, here's some flowers. I'm sorry for what I did. Take your flowers and throw them away. And she, she wants him, right? She doesn't want his sacrifice of the money of chocolates and whatever or trips. He, she doesn't want that. She wants him. God's the same thing with you. You may have these pursuits which are out there and you just love them. And you, oh, talk about Christmas, a disappointment here. Xbox got hacked and shut down. Everybody gets an Xbox. They can't play it, Right? They can't get online. What a disappointment. So disappointed. So angry what's going on. You know, this idea of being jealous, too. The, the guy's going to be jealous over the woman. The woman's going to be jealous over the guy. He doesn't care about the sacrifice. He wants you. Don't get involved in other things like it's Xbox or whatever. That you, oh, i got to play this latest game. I could do this for 20 hours straight. You know, something like that. Don't. Give yourself to something else. Give yourself to God. That's what he wants. Now, going on. Just a couple of minutes left here. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. Talking about the covenants. And by that will we have made whole, or we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And this reinforces the idea 
that Christ's blood is sufficient for us and makes us acceptable to the Father. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when the priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. And we'll end right there in verse 13. But Christ is now waiting for us. And there's some more application in this chapter to be made. But he's waiting for us. He doesn't want you to be so enamored with the things of the world and the pursuits of the world, the hobbies or the work which is out there. There's a time for rest, time for relaxation. But Christ, most of all, he just wants you. He's not interested in your sacrifices. It doesn't mean we don't sacrifice. But he wants your heart. He wants when you wake up in the morning, you turn to him and so you say, Good morning, Lord. Another day in paradise, right? And this is truly paradise on earth, what he has given to us, because we have Christ. There's joy to be had. But again, as we go from this place, just remember, please keep in mind, there are a lot of those who didn't have a good Christmas. A lot of those who are downtrodden and disappointed. Our family, we had a fantastic Christmas. We're so blessed. But there's so many that don't. And just as Christ had a heart for us and sacrificed everything for us, as you see those who are out there who are suffering and they need something, if you're able to help them in some way, help them. This is what Christ has called us to. He is the ultimate sacrifice and he has set the example for us as well that we might sacrifice and do his will here on earth. We are his hands to do his will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the scripture. We thank you for Hebrews. We thank you for the explanations that are delivered. We thank you that we're no longer under this old covenant, but we are under your grace. Father, may you make that real to us in this upcoming year. May we not shy away from doing what you have asked us to do, to be disciples and to show your love through what we do. We ask, Lord, that you would strengthen us for these tasks which lie ahead, and we know they won't be easy. But you have determined before the foundations of the earth that they should take place. And we thank you for the chance, Lord. Strengthen us for it in Jesus' name. Amen.